0: Okay. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome back to Bible study. It's exciting to see so many new faces here. People who haven't been in a while. We're so glad to have you. For those of you who have been, welcome back. Um, Let's pray and get started. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you that you've preserved your word and that you've given it to us to change our hearts. Father, help us not just to gain more knowledge, but to actually change from what we learn about your love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we finally reached the end of the beginning of God's story. This is the last of the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch, which means five books. Um, It's also called the Torah in Hebrew. Torah means law. When you hear Jesus or the Pharisees referring to the law in the New Testament, this is what they're talking about, the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch was written by Moses, and you might be surprised to know that there's some controversy about that. Was it really written by Moses, or was it really written much later? We're going to believe God's word on that one. Um, All five books say that Moses wrote them, and Jesus said that Moses wrote them. So we're going to go with that. They were written by Moses. (laughs) Before we get started into Deuteronomy, I want to do a quick review of where we are in God's story. Several years ago, we began our journey through Genesis. How many of you were here for Genesis? Ooh, not many. Okay, well, some of us began our journey in Genesis. (laughs) God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. By just saying, let there be, and there was. God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, in his own image. And he gave them the mandate to rule over all of creation. He gave them joyful fellowship with himself. And they were to live in grateful obedience to his commands. We don't know how long this happy state continued. But in Genesis 3, we see the serpent step into the picture. Adam and Eve turned their attention from God to the serpent, and they disobeyed God's one and only rule, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At that point, all of mankind, every future generation, was plunged into darkness and disobedience and sin. They were separated from fellowship with God. Now, this was not a surprise to God. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that God's purpose from before he even created the world was to choose for himself a people to be in Christ. In Genesis 3, we also see a promise. God makes a promise to Adam and Eve that there will be someone, a descendant of Eve, who will defeat the serpent and turn things around. People will be again the way he created them, joyfully fellowshipping with him, gratefully obeying him. The whole Bible is the story of God's unfolding of that plan. And we know the someone that God promised to Eve is Jesus. So the whole Bible is the story of Jesus. In Noah's flood in Genesis, we saw both God's necessary judgment of sin and his provision of salvation. At the Tower of Babel, we saw man's persistent sin problem and the separation of people from each other. The whole world was in a mess. Then we get to Genesis 12. And out of the mess, out of a pagan idolatrous nation, God chooses one man, Abram. Later changes his name to Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's an important verse in Genesis. It shows that people have always been saved by faith, not by works. God entered into a covenant with Abraham, promising him he would have descendants and that his descendants would be blessed and would be a blessing. Is it hot in here or is it just me? It is so hot in here. (laughs) They would be blessed and they would be a blessing. Um, He promised them that they would have a kingdom and that they would have a land. Paul says in Galatians 3, 6, that God was speaking about one descendant in particular, and that's Jesus. From Abraham, God would unfold his great plan of salvation. From Abraham's sons, God chose Isaac. From Isaac's sons, God chose Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Israel. And his 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of Genesis, because of a famine in the land, Jacob and 11 of his sons go to Egypt, where his 12th son is ruling as prime minister. And they become favored guests of the pharaoh. But as Exodus begins, things have changed. There's a new pharaoh in town, and the Israelites are now oppressed and mistreated as slaves. The Bible tells us that God heard their cry and remembered. Now, when God remembers something, that doesn't mean God forgot something the way it would if we remembered something. When the Bible says God remembered, it's saying that God is now ready to act on behalf of his people. And he will act because of the covenant promises he made to Abraham. His promises to Abraham were made because of his promises to Adam and Eve. His promises to Adam and Eve were made because of his purpose before the foundation of the world. So God called a man, Moses, at the burning bush and sent him with great signs and wonders in the form of plagues to go free the people in Egypt. God did this to demonstrate that he alone is God and that he will keep his promises. So in the middle of the book of Exodus, God's people were set free through the final plague, the death of the firstborn, and the protection of the blood of the Passover lamb. Again, another picture of Jesus. God led them safely through the Red Sea and protected them from Pharaoh's army. And at Mount Sinai, God entered into a covenant with Israel, with all of Israel. He gave them his laws, and they promised more than once that they would obey everything God had to say. And then they almost immediately disobeyed by making and worshiping a golden calf. This was not a surprise to God. He knows our hearts. So God gave Moses plans for building a tabernacle A tent where God would meet with his people and where sin would be forgiven. This is one of the most glorious pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. John 1.14 says that the word, that is Jesus, took on flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. The place where God will meet with his people and sin will be forgiven. So Israel spent a year at Mount Sinai building the tabernacle, and at the end of Exodus, the glory of God comes down and fills the tabernacle. That's wonderful, and it's also a huge problem for Israel. Here is the presence of a holy God in the middle of a sinful camp of people. How would they survive? They were covenant-breaking sinners, and the holy God was living among them. Well, the book of Leviticus answered this question. How many of you studied Leviticus with us? More. I'm so proud of us for doing Leviticus. I cannot tell you how many times my Bible reading plan shipwrecked at Leviticus. And finally, I just started skipping it. But we have studied and finished Leviticus. Um, Leviticus gave Israel priests and Levites a system of sacrificial offerings, a set of ritual laws and holidays, All of this would deal with their sin problems so that a sinful people could live with a holy God. Again, these are all pictures of Jesus. I hope you studied Numbers with us this summer. How many people studied Numbers this summer? Ooh, that's a little number. (laughs) That's okay, I understand. Sometimes summers can get crazy. I'm going to give you a quick recap of what you missed. Numbers picks up God's story at the beginning of the second year after the Exodus. Israel's still at Mount Sinai. God instructs Moses to take a census of the tribes. He wants Moses to know how many men there are who are over 20 who are able to fight, because going into the promised land is going to take some fighting. He gave the people instructions for setting up and taking down both the tabernacle and the camp. He assigned duties to the Levites, who were not priests. When the pillar, in, uh, on the pillar of cloud and fire lifted from the tabernacle, the people were to set out, following the cloud. And in the second month of the second year, the cloud lifted, and the people set out for the promised land. Well, three days into the trip, people began to complain about all the wonderful meat and vegetables they had in Egypt. Oh, the melons and garlic of Egypt. And quoting them here, Now there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. The Lord disciplined them with fire and a plague, and the journey was delayed. Miriam, Moses' sister, and Aaron, Moses' brother and the high priest of Israel, started complaining about Moses' God-given leadership. They thought they should have a part in the leadership as well. The Lord disciplined them. The journey was delayed again. We read in um, Deuteronomy 1, verse 2, that it's a journey of 11 days. Now, maybe it took them a few months to get there, given the size of the camp and all the grumbling and discipline that happened along the way. But it actually took them 40 years to get into the promised land. Why is that? Why did a trip of 11 days take 40 years? The answer is the second great rebellion. Israel arrived at the oasis at Kadesh, which is right on the border of the promised land. They sent out 12 spies, one from each tribe of Israel, to check out the promised land before they entered it. The 12 spies were gone for 40 days, and they came back with a great report. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, just as God said. It's wonderful. There are cities, and there is food, and it's going to be great. But 10 of them said, but the people are strong, and the cities are fortified, and we can't overcome it. Only Caleb and Joshua trusted God and knew that God would fight for them and that they could indeed overcome it. Well, the people freaked out. They showed their unbelief by saying, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to kill us? And despite all the power and goodness that God had shown them along the way, they didn't trust him. So they said, let's choose a leader and we'll go back to Egypt. Moses interceded for them. And instead of killing all of Israel, the Lord only killed the ten unfaithful spies. But he said to Israel, not one of you who who was over 20 years of age at the time of the exodus will ever set foot in the promised land. No one except for Caleb and Joshua. So immediately, Israel repented, right? No, they didn't. Immediately, Israel rebelled again. And they said, we will go up and take the promised land. Even though Moses warned them not to go, and the Ark of the Covenant, which was supposed to go before them, stayed in the camp. They strapped on their weapons, and they left for the promised land. Well, they were defeated. God was not with them. God had told them they could not go. They were defeated, and they came back. And Israel spent the next 38 years in the desert, following the cloud, breaking camp when it moved, pitching camp when it stopped, just waiting for that rebellious generation to die. There was a lot more grumbling and rebellion that happened during that 38 years in the desert. Even Moses directly disobeyed God, and God said to him, you will not enter the promised land either. Finally, Miriam, Moses' sister, and Aaron, Moses' brother, die. Aaron's son, Eleazar, becomes the high priest of Israel. And then nearing the end of the 40 years, the Lord led them up along the Transjordan, which is the area on the east side of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. Um, Not the promised land, but the land bordering the promised land. They went through the countries of Edom and Moab and Ammon, Heshbon and Bashan. Today, that's Jordan and southern Syria. They were told not to attack Edom or Moab or Ammon because the Lord had given those countries to the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Lot. They were attacked by various other kings along the way and they were victorious in battle because they were doing what the Lord had said them to do and the Lord fought for them. At least they were victorious until Balak, the king of Moab, hired a prophet, Balaam, to curse Israel. If you missed this story, this is where the talking donkey is. I'm sorry you missed it. This is a good story. Balaam was physically unable to curse Israel, because he could not curse a land that the Lord had blessed. But Balaam had another idea. And the women of Moab began to seduce the men of Israel and led them into idol worship. Right there on the border of the promised land, they were worshiping idols once again. They were unfaithful to the God who led them there, who had them be victorious in battle, who showed them this land unfaithful again, and God sent a plague that killed 24,000. Numbers ends with another census, the new generation. God reveals to them what will be the borders of their land and tells them they must drive out the inhabitants and destroy all of the idols and places of worship in their land to purify the land. Deuteronomy begins on the first day of the 11th month of the 40th year. Israel's once again on the border of the promised land, and they stay there for the entire book of Deuteronomy. Nothing happens. It's unusual for a book of the Old Testament because books of the Old Testament are full of people going here and there and battles and people doing things. Nobody does anything in Deuteronomy. Moses talks. So Deuteronomy begins with this new generation getting a second chance to enter the promised land. Imagine yourself in their shoes. Some of you might vaguely remember Egypt. You might have been a child or a teenager when your parents left Egypt. Most of you were born in the desert. You don't know any other life. You spent your whole life living in a tent in the wilderness, packing up with no notice and going you don't know where, until you're told to stop. You've eaten only manna and the meat of the fellowship offerings. That's all you've had to eat for 40 years. And finally, you can see right there in front of you a land of your own. There are permanent houses that you can make into homes. There are vineyards and orchards. There are gardens for vegetables and fields for grain. There are pastures for sheep and goats and cattle. There are marketplaces where you can actually buy things that you didn't have to make yourself. There's security, a land with walled cities and defendable borders. A land promised to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, abundant, blessed by God, right there in front of you. But what else do you see when you look out at this land? You see a hostile, very strong, fear-inducing, idol-worshiping, dangerous people who are living in your land. What would you need to hear at that moment? What would you need for Moses to say to you? What would you need for God to say to you? That's what Deuteronomy is all about. Moses uses every possible incentive to get the people to go in and take the land that the Lord has given them. That's a phrase you'll see repeated over and over again in Deuteronomy. Go in and take the land that the Lord your God has given you. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 is a key verse to understanding this book. I'm going to read it to you. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession, out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Not because you are more in number, Moses says in several other places in Deuteronomy, not because you are righteous, only by God's grace. God chose you. He's redeemed you. He will keep his promises to you. He loves you. Now, this is an interesting word, this word love. Um, It has appeared in the Bible before this point. Um, Abraham loved Isaac. Jacob loved Rebekah. People were commanded to love God. It has appeared other places. It has only once appeared, and that's Exodus 20, in reference to God loving. And it's part of God revealing his glory to Moses. And it says God shows steadfast love to thousands. But here in Deuteronomy is the first time the Bible says God loves you. That's an important thing to keep in mind. God loves these people. God's people, both then and now, can't hear that too much or meditate on it too often. So I should just stop right here because that's really the point of Deuteronomy. But you know me better than that. (laughs) Um, There are several ways to divide the book. It has the form of an ancient treaty document There's a prologue, there's a history, there are curses and blessings. Um, There are calls to obedience, just like an ancient treaty document would be set up. But I think the easiest way to organize this book is by Moses' three sermons. He gives three sermons set apart by the words, Moses said to Israel. It ends with a song and a prophecy and a record of the death of Moses. To me, this is the easiest way to organize it. So PowerPoint and I are still on a break. We, we are talking, but I'm not ready to commit yet. So the first sermon is chapters 1 through 4. And this sermon is about looking back at God's grace. In this sermon, Moses reviews Israel's history from Mount Sinai to the place they are right now, camped on the edge of the Promised Land. He reminds them of their rebellion and their wilderness wanderings. And he reminds them of God's faithfulness to his promises to them. He reminds them that God owns the land, that God's the one who gives it or takes it away. He reminds them they've already been victorious in battle and that God will fight for them again. He reminds them about their tendency to idolatry. And reminds them that God alone is God. He reminds them of their covenant obligations. They've already said they will obey this covenant. They've entered into it. Some of the key words you'll see in this section and and actually throughout the whole book are remember, do not forget, lay it to heart. The people are to keep those things in their heart, to treasure them and remember them. So the second sermon starts in chapter 5. And runs through chapter 26. And I'm calling this one looking up at God's grace. It's by far the longest sermon of the three. In it, Moses points the people to the righteous requirements of God. He reminds the people again of the covenant they've entered into, the commandments to which they have already agreed, He reviews the Ten Commandments and many of the other laws. There are some old laws that he expounds upon and some new ones that are added. Um, Let me just include a warning right here about the laws. Some of them may seem bizarre or even a little barbaric to you. We're looking back from the 21st century on a very ancient people. These laws were very, very, very consistent with the laws of the nations around them, and a step better than what the other nations are doing. You need to keep that in mind. You also need to keep in mind what God is doing. God is bringing his people into his land, building for himself a nation where his word will be lived and protected and obeyed and learned and kept until such a time as he's ready to send the Messiah. So some of these laws are with that point in mind, that God's word needs to be kept. This section also includes the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Uh, The Shema contains the commandment Jesus said was the most important commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Moses calls Israel to remember who they are, redeemed slaves, unrighteous, stubborn people who continually provoke God, and idol worshipers deserving death. And he calls them to remember who God is, God of gods and Lord of lords, mighty and awesome, the God who has chosen them and redeemed them and provided for them and led them and fought for them and made promises to them and who will love them. He warns them over and over again about their pride and their idolatry. He calls them to love and serve this gracious God in the way he's commanded, in the place he will choose when they go into the promised land, to hold fast to him and to obey. Keywords in this section are listen or hear, and it doesn't just mean let the words come into your head. Like when you say to your child, go clean up your room right now, and your child sits there, and you say, do you hear me, you don't just mean, do the words go into your ears, you mean, why aren't you getting up and doing it? Listen and hear has the idea that, and obey, attached to it. Um, Obey, do, keep the commandments are also words that you'll see repeated over and over again. So, Sermon 3 starts in Chapter 27. And goes on to chapter 33. And that sermon is about looking ahead to God's grace. In this sermon, Moses talks to Israel about entering the promised land. Again, he calls Israel to remember their covenant blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, to choose life and not death, to choose good and not evil. He reminds them of how they're to live in the promised land in a way to display God's glory to the world. Moses encourages Israel again that God will go before them and destroy the nations. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is their Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then comes the kind of discouraging part. Moses says to Israel, I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. In the days to come, evil will befall you. you will because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Moses tells Israel that when they fail, if they will turn to God in repentance and obedience, God will have compassion on them and restore them. And there's a the most wonderful promise here in chapter 30. The Lord will circumcise your heart, and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and live. It's a promise of the new covenant. Moses reminds them that he himself will not be able to enter the promised land, and Joshua is commissioned as the leader of Israel. Then Moses teaches them a song given to him by the Lord. The song will not only help Israel to remember but it is a warning to them not to fall into the old ways. And it's a witness against them when they disobey. Then Moses offers a prophetic blessing to the, 12, to the tribes of Israel. And this blessing ends in a great praise to God for his grace and faithfulness to Israel. So Deuteronomy ends with a record of Moses' death. That's chapter 34. Now, I told you Deuteronomy was written by Moses. Clearly, chapter 34 was not written by Moses. He's dead. Um, Possibly recorded by Joshua or Eleazar, the high priest. Possibly not added till later, maybe by Samuel or Ezra. We don't know who added chapter 34. But God has preserved it as part of his word, so we can trust that it is a true account of what happened. We don't need to worry, really, about who wrote it. So, Deuteronomy is the continuing story of a faithful, gracious God working out his purpose from before the foundation of the earth. His promises to Adam and Eve, his promises to Abraham, and his promises to us. Why is Deuteronomy relevant to us? Well, if you did numbers this summer, you probably read what I wrote in the blog. But I'm going to say it again. When I look to these Israelites from the time they left Egypt to this point, I'm tempted to roll my eyes and shake my head and say, just do what God says. What is the matter with you? And then the Holy Spirit convicts me of the log in my own eye and my prideful heart. Um, How often do I grumble and complain about what God has given me? Or about what God hasn't given me? How many times do I fail to express gratitude to my God who has chosen and redeemed and blessed and sanctified and called and loves me? How many idols do I create in my own heart, in the place that rightfully belongs to God? How often does my fear and anxiety show that I'm really unbelieving? How often do I defy God by deliberate sin? Well, I've got to tell you, all too often, more than I want to say even. If you're anything like me, maybe you do the same. We serve a gracious, merciful, loving God who is on display in Deuteronomy. We need the warnings. We need the reassurance. We need to go and take possession of what God has given us. God didn't abandon Israel when they were unfaithful to him in the wilderness. He didn't abandon Israel when they were unfaithful to him in the promised land. And he won't abandon us on our pilgrimage through this life. I need to hear that. God is a faithful father who will always keep his promises. I want to quote um, Hebrews 8 for the ending here. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We need that strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Let's pray. Father, you are a good and kind and gracious God and We would know nothing about you except what you've revealed in your word. Father, help us to see your love that you've chosen and redeemed and called us and that you love us, and help us to let that motivate us to obedience. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for yourself. We pray in Jesus' name.